All right. Thank you, Brother Bert. And uh, let's take our Bibles, if you have those here this morning. And uh, always a blessing to be here in chapel and then also to open up the Word of God. Take your Bibles. Go with me to Matthew chapter number 6. Matthew chapter number 6. And a very familiar passage as we think about the model prayer that we find here. Matthew chapter number 6. And uh, we're going to look at verse number 7 down to verse number 15. And I want to bring to you a message entitled, The Qualities of an effective prayer, the qualities of an effective prayer as we think about these nine verses here. And uh, we're going to go verse by verse throughout this sermon, just study exactly what the Bible teaches us uh, in these verses. And so Matthew chapter number six, verse number seven, down to verse number 15. The Bible reads here, it says, but when he pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the wonderful day that you've given us thus far. And uh, Lord, as we come now to this portion of our day, as we gather together for chapel, and Father, as we come to Matthew chapter number 6, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand and glean from the truths that we find here about our prayer life. And Father, I pray that we can walk away from this place in just a few moments encouraged and uh, strengthened and challenged. I pray, Father, that each and every single one of us would have the qualities of an effective prayer that would engender your involvement, that would bring change within our lives, that ultimately you would be magnified and that you'd be glorified. Father, we love you so much for this morning. We thank you for all that you do. We pray now that you bless this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the greatest mistakes that we make in our Christian lives here this morning is to underestimate the power of prayer. Uh, once again, one of the greatest mistakes that we make in our Christian lives this morning is to underestimate the power of prayer. I think about a story that is told about a small town that had historically been dry, but then a local businessman decided to build a tavern, decided to build a bar within that town, and a group of Christians from a local church were concerned and, uh, and, and they were worried about that. And so they planned an all-night prayer meeting together to ask God to intervene concerning that tavern. And it just so happened that evening as they were praying, shortly after they begun, a lightning came down from heaven and struck the bar and it burned it down to the ground. The next morning, the owner saw his bar and he decided to sue the church, claiming that the prayers of the congregation were responsible. But the church responded to that, and they hired a lawyer to argue in that court that they were not responsible for the lightning that had burned down that bar. The presiding judge, after his initial review of the case, simply stated these words. He said, no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer, and the Christians do not. And I wonder here this morning, do we believe in the power of prayer? For according to the Bible, what truly is going to make a difference in our personal lives and in our families, in our future marriages, in our churches, in our communities, and in our country is the spiritual discipline of prayer. 
The Bible teaches us in 2 Chronicles chapter number 7, verse number 14. It reads, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You see, God didn't say, humble yourselves and change the laws. Uh, God didn't say, humble yourselves and change, uh, reform the government. Or God didn't say, humble yourselves and start a movement. Now, all those things are important to a certain degree. But as Bible-believing Christians here this morning, we must realize that all of those activities pale in comparison to the importance and the power of prayer. Uh, I think about what Oswald Chambers said many years ago. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work within our lives. And hence, as we think about this portion in Matthew chapter number six, I want to encourage and challenge each and every one of us that we would spend much time in prayer. But furthermore, as we think about the context here concerning our chapter, I want us to think about this passage and I want to challenge each and every one of us, not necessarily in the area of do you pray, but in the area of our manner of our prayer. Uh, and the question is here this morning, do we have a prayer life that is effective? Uh, do we have a prayer life that engenders a response from the Lord? And do we have a prayer that is prayed in a manner that is effective to bring about change and to bring about answers from our God? And so this morning, notice with me several principles concerning the qualities of an effective prayer as we think about this passage. First of all, notice with me as we begin in verse number seven, I find here the inaccuracy about prayer. Notice the inaccuracy about prayer. It reads there, but when he pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Uh, the words that we find there, vain at repetitions, is the Greek word bata logeo. And uh, two words there, bato, speaking about stammer and to repeat, and logos, speaking about word. And so it means to stutter foolishly or to babble. Uh, of course, the word heathen there, we would understand as those that are unsaved and the Gentiles. And uh, as Jesus is speaking here, he's not condemning long prayers or one who spends much time in prayer, for Jesus taught us about the prayer of importunity. Uh, Jesus taught us about the importance of continually coming before the Lord and seeking his throne and coming diligently and adamantly concerning that request. And so Jesus is not condemning the length of prayer, but what he is condemning here within these verses is the erroneous belief and practice of the Gentiles and the heathens who believe that they would receive answers from their pagan gods, not necessarily by the content of their prayer or the character of the one who offered that prayer, but rather by simply the length of their prayers, even if it was thoughtless and mindless and heartless, filled with vain repetitions and hollow recitations. And you see, that's exactly what Jesus is preaching against here. He's condemning that type of prayer, not necessarily the length, but a prayer that believes, hey, without the proper content, without the proper character, simply because of its length, it's going to be fruitful and it's going to be answered. I think about the prayers that are offered in the Old Testament. I think about in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, we find there the prophets of Baal versus Elijah. And the Bible teaches in verse number 26 of that chapter, and they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. 
And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is on a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And then verse 29, And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded uh, the Bible teaches us here that they prayed for a very long time, from morning to noon, and then from noon to the evening sacrifice, they prophesied uh, before their pagan gods. And so at a minimum, they would have been praying for about three or, or maybe six hours on that afternoon and morning. And no doubt, they would have used vain repetitions. Uh, no doubt, they would have had uh, memorized chants and formalized prayers. And, and they thought to themselves, the longer we simply pray, uh, the longer we continuously repeat these uh, recitations before our pagan gods, that's going to bring about an answer, and uh, that's going to bring about uh, the involvement of our God. But we find here towards the end of their prayer, there was no voice. Uh, the Bible says that there was no answer. And then we think about the prayer of Elijah and the verses that follow. And in verse number 36, the Bible reads, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Uh, as we think about the prayer of Elijah, those were 63 words. Uh, it might have taken him maybe five minutes to pray that prayer before the Lord, but we find here immediately the fire fell from heaven. And we must understand here this morning as we think about this truth that God is not so concerned about the length of one's prayer as much as he is concerning the weight and the sincerity and the heart behind that prayer. And you see, in Jesus' time, the Jews has also embraced this inaccuracy about prayer. The Jews during that time believed that long prayers alone were equivalent to being spiritual prayers and that they would result in being effective before the Lord. I think about what one rabbi taught. He said, whoever is long in prayer is heard. But you see, the fact of the matter is this morning that God, once again, is not so impressed with the length of our prayers. Now, once again, he's not preaching against the length of our prayers. We ought to spend much time with the Lord in prayer and in the closet with our Savior. But primarily, he is concerned with the sincerity and the devotion of our hearts as we approach the throne of grace within our lives. In James 5.16, the Bible teaches the effectual fervent and that's speaking about the sincerity and the earnestness of one's heart in prayer, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I think about what John Bunyan said many years ago, in prayer it is better to have a heart without words than words without heart. And so first of all, we find here in these opening verses, there's an inaccuracy about prayer. But secondly, I want you to notice with me as we continue, I find here the instructions on prayer. And here are the instructions that the Lord Jesus Christ gives concerning prayer uh, as we look about these ensuing verses. And as we think about the subject of prayer here this morning, the two biggest problems when it comes to prayer is, first of all, that we do not pray. Uh, but secondly, that we do not know how to pray or we pray in the wrong manner. 
Uh, James speaks about that in James chapter number four. He says, ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. There's the first problem there. We don't spend time in the activity of prayer. But then in verse number three, he continues, ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss. And there's a second problem with prayer, that we don't know how to pray. We're not praying in the manner that God desires for us to bring our request before him. He asks amiss that he may consume it upon your lust. And so here, as we think about the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples, it's not primarily in the action of prayer that they must pray, but rather he instructs them on the proper manner of prayer that they must know how to pray. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ giving them this manner, giving them the model prayer and the instructions. Once again, it's not saying, hey, you must pray, although that's part of it as we think about the entirety of the teaching of the scriptures. And likewise here this morning, uh, we must pray. That's the first problem. If we're not praying, then we have to spend time and we have to discipline ourselves to get into that prayer closet and spend time at the feet of our Savior. We must pray. But then secondly, we must ask the question, is my prayer effective? Uh, the manner of my prayer, does it, does it bring God's answers? Is it bringing about change as I come to the Lord in prayer? And so in verse number nine, Jesus teaches, after this manner, therefore pray ye. And Jesus here is not commanding that we would memorize and recite this prayer, for we never see that done by Jesus or any other Christian within the Bible. But he is giving us a model of prayer that we might know how to properly pray. And I think there's some amazing instructions here concerning the model prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine with me here this morning, if you want to go out there and you want to become a great football player and you want to be a good quarterback and you have the opportunity to sit down with Tom Brady, right? You sat down with Tom Brady. He says, hey, give me, give me about five minutes here. Let me give you some instructions on how to be a successful quarterback. I think you would take out a piece of paper, you would take all the notes, you try to apply that, implement that within your life. Maybe you want to become a great basketball player and you got the opportunity to sit down with Michael Jordan. He said, hey, give me about 10 minutes, let me tell you some things about basketball. Man, you would lean at the edge of your seat, you would take down notes about every single thing that he said that you might implement that within your life. And can I say here this morning, as we think about the dialogue and the conversation that is occurring here between the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples, as he's, as he's delivering to them the Sermon on the Mount, he's letting them know, hey, let me give you some instructions about prayer. Uh, here's the master at prayer, Jesus Christ himself. And he gives them some instructions about how they can have an effective prayer life. And I want you to notice within these instructions, there are three attitudes of the heart that we find within these verses. In verse number nine in the latter portion, first of all, we must have a heart or an attitude that is reverent before God. He says, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That word hallowed there means to make holy, to consecrate, and to set apart. And the idea here is to recognize that our God is set apart, that he's a holy God, that he transcends all of creation and this universe. His name is above all names, and therefore we must worship him with great reverence, that we must approach the throne of grace with great reverence and fear for our God. You know, in today's society, we choose names, in most cases, because we like how they sound. And uh, I think about the most popular names uh, today in 2022, the top five when it comes to girls is Olivia, and then Emma, and then Amelia, Ava, and Sophia. 
Uh, when it comes to the boys, the top five is Liam and Noah and Oliver and Elijah and Mateo. And when we think about names, we usually select names based upon how we like them to sound. I think about my second child, Natalie, and Natalie, that name means born on Christmas. Uh, Natalie was not born on Christmas, she was born on May the 1st. And so that, that name was not chosen because of the meaning, but we like the sound of that name, and that's why we named her Natalie. And so today, generally, names don't mean much in that sense that not too many people think about the meaning underlying that name. However, in the Bible, names are important. Uh, in the Bible, titles are very important that not only do they represent a person, but they also give insight into that person's character, at times their personality, a physical trait, and at sometimes even an event that took place in history during their life. And so as we think about this first portion uh, that we come to here concerning the fact that Jesus teaches us, hallowed be thy name, we ought to consider the names concerning our God and the titles of our God that we find throughout the scriptures. And each and every single one of them are extremely important and they reveal for us a certain attribute of God that ought to develop within our hearts a proper reverential attitude as we approach him in a spirit of fear and worship. I think about the name Elohim. It speaks about the fact that he's the creator, he's mighty and strong. I think about his title of Jehovah, the covenant title between him and Israel, the self-existent one. He's immutable, he's eternal. I think about the title El Shaddai, God is almighty, he's omnipotent. The title Adonai, he's Lord, he's master, he's authority. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner. He will fight for us. He will give us victory within this life. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Uh, not only heals us physically, but spiritually and mentally and emotionally. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. And Jehovah Shalom, the Lord, our peace. And as we approach the Lord in prayer, we ought to take some time to remember that as we approach the throne of grace, we're not approaching into the throne of a president or a room of some kind of earthly king or a multi-billionaire CEO. But as we enter into that time of prayer, we are coming before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the self-existent one, Jehovah God, uh, the Elohim, the El Shaddai, the Adonai, the one who provides, the one who is our banner, the one who heals. And as we remember the titles of God that ought to Develop a heart of reverence as we approach the Lord in our time of prayer. In Psalm 100 verse 4, it says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. So first of all, we find here the attitude of reverence, but also we find here a spirit of relinquishment, to be relinquished. It says in verse number 10, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. You know, the ultimate goal of prayer is not to accomplish our will in this life, but rather it is to accomplish his will and to bring him glory. And to do that, we must be fully relinquished of our will and we must desire the will of God. Alan Redpath said, before we can pray, thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray, my kingdom go. And oftentimes the reason why we are not effective in prayers because we are asking God to fulfill our will without ever seeking if that aligns with the will of God. And this morning we might be praying for our health and we might be praying for a certain type of deliverance and 
we might be praying for our finances and nothing wrong with any of those prayer requests that we would have here this morning. But at the end of the day, at the end of all of those prayer requests, there must be a spirit and an attitude of relinquishment that says our will not be done, but God's will be done. Lord, uh, I pray for this healing, but Lord, if you have a different plan for my life, then thy will be done and you be glorified. And uh, there's a spirit of surrender that ultimately his will uh, would prevail within this life on earth as it is in heaven. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, we think about the prayer of our Savior saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I think about a book that's entitled One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And uh, within that book, the author writes about the horrors that Ivan faced in a Soviet prison camp. And uh, he gives an account that Ivan was praying with his eyes closed when a fellow prisoner noticed what he was doing. And that fellow prisoner said, prayers won't help you to get out of here any faster. And opening his eyes, Ivan replied this way to the fellow prisoner. He said, I do not pray to get out of prison, but to do the will of God. And that ought to be the spirit and the attitude of our prayer as well, that we'd be fully surrendered as we seek the Lord concerning these requests. Lord, I pray that you'd give me healing, but at the end of the day, thy will be done, not mine. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help me through this period of trial and this period of confusion and this period of heartache. But Lord, at the end of the day, not my will, but, but thy will be done. That ultimately he would be glorified through our lives. And so we find here a spirit of reverence. We find here the relinquishment. And then I want you to notice also as we continue, we find here the spirit of reliance. And the spirit of reliance that we must always have a humble spirit in prayer, wholly reliant on the Lord, remembering that without him, we can do nothing. And I want you to notice with me in verse number 11, we find here a reliance on our daily provisions. It says, give us this day our daily bread. And here that bread is not simply speaking about food, but it represents our necessities to survive uh, within this life. And notice that prayer is a daily prayer for daily bread. It's not weekly, monthly, or yearly, but for our day-to-day -day necessities. And the Lord is teaching us here that every day we need the Lord. And every day we must be reliant upon his grace and upon his blessings and upon his provisions and upon his favor. We cannot rely on the prayers uh, of yesterday or yesteryear. But today, once again, we must rely every single day that, Lord, you would provide for me the power. You would provide for me the grace. That, Lord, you would provide for me the provisions that I need today. We must be reliant upon him concerning our daily provisions. D.L. Moody said, a man can no more take us supply of grace for the future, then he can eat enough today to last him for the next six months. Nor can he inhale sufficient air into his lungs with one breath to sustain life for a week to come. We are permitted to draw upon God's store of grace from day to day as we need it. There must be a reliance upon the daily provisions from God, but then also there must be a reliance on his daily protection. And notice what the Bible says in verse number 12 down to verse number 13. It says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And this is a plea for the providential help of God when it comes to our daily confrontation with sin, when it comes to our daily confrontation with temptations, for without the Lord, we will falter. Uh, without his daily protection, we will fall and, and fail, and therefore we need his help to avoid the place of sin. 
Uh, we need his help on a daily basis to avoid seeing and hearing things uh, that are sinful, to avoid being around uh, conversations that would not be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. We must realize that without prayer, we will succumb to our temptations. And every single day, we must pray that prayer that he would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that he would protect us from the sinfulness of this life. You know, Paul emphasized the need for prayer in our battle against sin and our spiritual warfare in Ephesians uh, chapter number six, as we think about the whole armor of God that we're supposed to put on every single day. It ends there in verse number 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. I think about a survey that was taking place in a publication entitled The Discipleship Journal. And uh, within that survey, within that publication, they ranked the most challenging temptations that believers faced. And then they asked, what was the greatest help in resisting those temptations? And I think about the top four answers here. Number four, they said, uh, being accountable to somebody else concerning that temptation that I have within my life. And the number three was Bible study. Uh, number two was avoiding compromising situations. And number one was prayer was a diligent, disciplined prayer life that allowed them to resist the temptations that they faced within their Christian walk. You know, Jesus encouraged Peter to pray that he would not sin. In Matthew 26, verse 41, watch and pray that he enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so as we think about the manner of prayer here, the instructions on prayer, we find three attitudes that are listed for us within this model prayer. An attitude of having reverence, uh, an attitude of being fully surrendered and relinquished before our God, and then an attitude of being completely reliant and dependent upon the Lord for our daily provisions and then also for our daily protection. And so as we think about an effective prayer, first of all, the inaccuracy about prayer uh, secondly, the instructions on prayer that we find here concerning our manner. And then thirdly, I want you to notice with me in verse 14 and 15, we find here the last point, and that is concerning the interference to prayer. Uh, notice the interference or the hindrance, the obstacle to having an effective prayer life. And it reads there in verse number 14. It says, for if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And this verse would refer back to verse number 12, and, and Jesus in his wisdom emphasizes an attitude and also a specific sin that will hinder one's fellowship with the Lord and hence interfere with one's prayer. Uh, now this is not teaching within this context uh, regarding salvation. Uh, Jesus is not teaching here that, uh, that if we do not forgive others, then he's not going to forgive us. It's not speaking about our salvation and our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the context here is in prayer. Uh, and the general idea here is in connection to prayer that God will not respond to our prayers if we have sin in our lives. Uh, if we have sin, if we have that which is unpleasing before the Lord, and specifically in the context of these verses, he's speaking about the sin of unforgiveness. And Jesus is teaching us here, if we don't have relationships that are right horizontally, then we cannot have or expect to receive answers to our prayers vertically if we have unforgiveness within our hearts. In Mark chapter 11, verse 24, the Bible reads there, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when he pray, believe that he received them, and he shall have them. And when he stand praying, forgive, if he have aught against any. 
And your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. And so the Bible teaches us if we harbor unforgiveness within our hearts, or any other sin for that matter, and we come before the Lord in prayer, God says, take care of that sin first. Uh, take care of that relationship first before we can connect and commune and communicate in the avenue of prayer. I remember uh, several years ago during COVID, all of a sudden I was working at my house and, and uh, the Wi-Fi completely went out and the internet completely went out. And uh, it was during a time when we were uploading videos and, and having services recorded and, and uh, putting up devotions. And uh, it was very frustrating for me because there was a lot of work to do that day. And, and so I tried for several hours to troubleshoot. So I checked every single device that we had in the home. And then uh, I went to every single router and then went to the modem. I unplugged and plugged it back in, turned off the power, reset everything. And, and uh, for several hours, at least for about three to four hours, I was trying to figure out how can I fix this internet? Uh, I desperately need this so that we can minister uh, to our church. But after four hours, absolutely to no avail. Uh, couldn't fix that problem. And so finally I got on the phone and I uh, called our internet company and uh, set up an appointment. And about four days later, the technician came to my house. And uh, I remember he did the same things that I did. He, he checked all our devices. He, he went through all, all the routers, unplugged them, plugged them back in, reset the power. He went to the modem, unplugged, plugged it back in and reset the power. He did everything I did, same result, nothing, uh, no internet, no, no Wi-Fi that was reconnecting to our house. And so he said, hey, give me a few minutes. And he walked out of the house and he kind of followed where our cable line travels outside of our home. And, and then it travels to the other side of our, of our uh, street there to a neighboring house. And in front of there, there's a cable box. And uh, he opened up that cable box and he started looking inside and did some research. And then finally he came back into our house and he said, I found the problem. He said, I know exactly what was wrong concerning your Wi-Fi and your internet. It wasn't your devices, it wasn't your routers, it wasn't uh, anything to do with your modem, but he said somehow, he said somehow you were completely disconnected from the cable box uh, over at your neighbor's house. The local cable box that all of these connect to, he said somehow somebody had pulled that and you were disconnected. And uh, he finally reconnected that cable and within a few seconds we had Wi-Fi and we were able to upload and we were able to move forward in what we were doing there for the church. And oftentimes I think about that story, I think about that event and what took place. And, and oftentimes when it comes to our prayer life, we agonize and we expend a lot of time and energy trying to attain a response from the Lord without any success. And oftentimes the reason why is because we're disconnected. Uh, the reason why is because we have some sin within our life. The reason why is because we have some unforgiveness and maybe some bitterness that we're harboring within our hearts and, and we're not confessing, we're not repenting, we have presumptuous sin and, and we're agonizing and we're trying to seek an answer from the Lord, but at the end of the day, we're disconnected. Uh, there, there's, no, there's no conversation that's taking place. There's no communication. Why? Because we have a sin that we are regarding within our hearts. The Bible teaches us in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Not that God can't hear, for he is omniscient, but he's not going to respond to our prayers as long as we regard sin within our lives. And so the Bible teaches us here that if we're going to get an audience with the Lord, then we have to make sure that we have the right relationships horizontally. We have to make sure that we evaluate our hearts, that we're pure and holy before the Lord to have an effective prayer life, the qualities of an effective prayer. 
And so I wonder here this morning as we think about the teachings of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, I realize all of us, we are desperately in need to experience the power of God. Uh, I think about even this morning as, as I woke up, my wife uh, came over to me and she received a text message early in the morning. And uh, she said, it's my cousin, and my cousin is asking us to pray for her. Her health has declined drastically in the past few days, and she's fearful of losing her life, and she's asking us to pray. And as I received that prayer request, I was asking the question to myself once again, do I have an effective prayer life? Uh, can I go before the Lord on her behalf, and, and can, I, can I bring a proper prayer that would, that would engender a response and an answer from God? And I wonder here this morning, do you have the qualities of an effective prayer? Are you being reverent? Do we approach that time flippantly, casually? Are you being relinquished? Is, is it your will or his will be done? Are you being reliant? Are you humbly daily depending upon him for your provision, for your protection from sin? And then do you have a sin? Do you have something in your life that hinders you in your prayer life from receiving a response and an answer from the Lord? All of us desperately need power from God through prayer. But that power only comes when we have an effective prayer life, the qualities of an effective prayer as we think about the model prayer in Matthew 6. Let's pray together. 